Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. One reason for establishing this weekly series here at Everveda is to go deep into that magnificent philosophy of um, the ancient Sanskrit yoga texts. The other reason is very selfish. I like good company. What, what, what was your expectation? When, some of you have said that you're familiar with Bhagavad Gita. What do you know about the Gita? What's your impression of the Bhagavad Gita? Any, any, anything at all? There's no right or wrong answer here. Yes? Um, I know, I've had an interest in it for a while, and I've been getting bits and pieces from different books. And, um, from what I've gathered, it's, it's really a blueprint um, for how to live life Good. Um, and there's a lot of stories in it, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but really it takes place on the battlefield with Krishna and Excellent. Very good. That's, that's actually a, a very nice opening definition of the Bhagavad Gita. It's a blueprint. Uh, in, in, in fact, the, the description in the Gita itself, in the fourth chapter, is that it's a blueprint that came into the world at the dawn of creation. Krishna is telling his disciple Arjuna on the battlefield that these teachings that I'm giving you uh, first came into the world when the world was created. I taught this to the sun god at the dawn of time. Arjuna doubts him. He says, wait a minute. We're childhood friends. We grew up together. What are you talking about teaching the sun god at the dawn of creation? Uh Uh-uh, Krishna says. Many, many births you and I have gone through. I remember them. You do not. So the antiquity of the Gita is established in the Gita itself as dating back to the the dawn of time. And it's very much like a blueprint or or a a user guide. When you buy a new piece of software, it comes with a user guide so that you'll install it properly and get the most out of it. Scriptures are like that. They're, they're, They're a user guide for how to live in the material world without becoming too entangled in the complexities and, and dangers of the material world. So it is very much a blueprint for ethical living, I think was how you described it. Even beyond ethical living, transcendent living, um, ethics are also relative from culture to culture. There's a transcendent dimension which is pointed to. Ultimately, all scripture should be pointing to that dimension. And if you go into the Kabbalistic tradition of Judaism, the mystic Christian texts, if you go into the Sufi texts of Islam, if you go into um, any of the deeper dimensions of scripture, the Puranic texts and the Gita, the Bhakti texts and Hinduism, you will find that transcendent dimension is what unifies them all. Um, But the word yoga, or derivatives of the word yoga, yogi, etc., appear 155 times in 700 verses. That's how important a text the Bhagavad Gita is to to yoga practice. There's a photo of Kurukshetra today. You can visit the place where the Bhagavad Gita was spoken. It's about a two-hour, three-hour train ride, I think, from Delhi. And at that place, uh, Krishna is reputed to have imparted to Arjuna uh, the teachings of the Gita in order to clarify Arjuna's, uh, to lead him out of his confusion. The Gita brings 
Arjuna and through Arjuna, all of us, from a place of not knowing to a place of knowing, from a place of inaction to a place of action, from a place of darkness to a place of light. It's this forward movement. And the shift, the movement that takes place, is not a physical change. It's a psychological change. It's a change of vision. The word appears in the Bhagavad Gita many times, darshan. So the change that place takes place through the teachings of the Gita is a change of vision. Meaning that the world you know now is the same world you will know after you achieve enlightenment. It is not a different place. It's the same world. That's what happens to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. You don't need to go away from the life you have in order to know transcendence, in order to know where do I come from, what's beyond this world of birth and death. It's there in the details, God in the details. It's a question of learning how to see it. The truth of things is right there in front of us, but we have to learn how to see it. That's the meaning of Bhagavad Gita, is learning how to see. Okay, first verse Bhagavad Gita. You all have your Gitas there? Please open to page 13. That's in the paperback edition. That's probably the same in, in the hardbound. Um, this is verse 1 of Bhagavad Gita. Essentially what you have here, the setup is that there's a blind king named Dhritarashtra. He and his sons are essentially unqualified to rule. They have <laughs> manipulated the votes you might say. They, they, they have uh, illegally taken over control of the kingdom. Um, they've usurped the throne of what we now call India. At the time it was called uh, Bharat, the kingdom, the greater kingdom of the world. Uh, so the, the seat of power in, in, in Delhi was considered the, what we call Delhi today, then it was had a different name. It was considered the seat of the entire world. The emperor of the dynasty was considered the emperor of, of all nations. So the time has come when the good guys, Arjuna and his four brothers, known as the Pandavas, are going to wage war and regain their illicitly stolen kingdom. So Dhritarashtra, who was born blind and is also spiritually blind, has a secretary named Sanjaya who is a disciple of Vyasa, whom you saw earlier, the compiler of the Vedic texts. Vyasa is considered an avatar of the Supreme, endowed with mystic abilities, and the privilege of endowing disciples, students, with some of those powers. Sanjaya, as a faithful student, had received from his teacher some of those powers and could visualize what was taking place far away on the battlefield. So Dhritarashtra is asking Sanjaya to act as his telepathic medium. And he says, on the field of Dharma, the place of righteous duty. On the field of Dharma, on the field of Kuru, assembled together desiring to fight were my armies and indeed, the, and indeed those of the sons of Pandu. How did they act as Sanjaya? Kimakurvata Sanjaya, and this is the Sanskrit that we're going to be reciting here. Kimakurvata, 
um, is usually in those other editions of Gita translated as what did they do? What are they doing? Um, there's a wonderful edition of the Gita by Graham Schweig where he uh, gives up, he parses this word akurvata, he, he translates the word akurvata slightly differently. And these differences are maybe small, but they are very meaningful. He uses the, the term conducted. How did they conduct, how are they conducting themselves? Because ultimately the Bhagavad Gita is not about what you're doing, it's about how you're doing it. So the real gist of this opening verse is, how are they behaving? Are my sons conniving to win this battle or are they acting like righteous warriors? What's going on? Tell me what's happening. So, here's the melody. I'll, I'll recite it one time and then we'll do it line by line. Dharmakshitri kurukshitri Samavita yuyutsavaha Mamakakpandavasjiva just a few notes, right? Want to try that with me? I'll do it once, then we'll all do it together. Dhanmakshitri kurukshitri Samavita yayutsavaha Mamakakvandavasjiva Kimmakurvata sanjaya Dhanmakshitri Part of your homework, practice this verse. So there are so many different editions of the Gita and this one in particular has a lot of things going for it. One of the reasons why I like this edition so much, obviously, is my teacher who did it, so I have a preference. But you have for each verse the original Sanskrit, the transliteration, how that Sanskrit Devanagari script is pronounced. You have synonyms for each word of the transliteration. You have a translation, an elaborate purport. In the back of the book, you have a general index. So if you want to know about Dharma, Karma, Atma, you want to know about whatever, you can go to the general index and it'll tell you all the places in the book that refer to that, that particular topic. It also has a glossary of terms, it has references, it's a very complete, I haven't found another edition of the Gita that is quite this complete. Now let me give you the caveat. Now I'm going to give you the warning. My teacher was born in 1896. Not even in the 20th century, he was born in the 19th century. And there are some places here where the cultural conventions of British India tend to carry over into the writing. So there may be occasional moments when you'll read something in a purport that's going to make you want to close the cover and don't do that. Just mark down the page and when you come next week, We'll talk about it. You have my word that despite certain anomalies that may appear in the teachings here, both Prabhupada and the commentary that he's offering is everything that you would need for a thorough understanding of the Bhagavad Gita. So be a little patient if sometimes there are 
phrases or terminology. There are words like sinful, for example, which is a reaction to the British missionary spirit of the day. Remember that the British had come in with their missionary schools and hospitals in an attempt to convert the Hindu heathens from their malicious practices, their horrible ways. Most horrible was worshiping Krishna. The idea of this forest deity who dances with women in the moonlight, you know, that image of Krishna as a god of play was seen as the most anti-Christian thing imaginable. So there was this backlash. And there was an appropriation of certain words by the teachers, the Indian teachers, to countermand that kind of conversional agenda on the part of the British missionaries. So you'll find the word sinful. I don't know, and I haven't heard the word sinful in, uh, since whenever, right? but you'll see it a few times in the book. So that's an example. Um, we're going to emphasize discussion here. So yes, let's open it up. We're going to run a little bit late, but that's okay. Can you stay a few minutes? Mm -hmm. All right. Yes. So you lived in the ashram for a long time. Were you, like, were you given any sort of powers, or did you come to notice you had sort of spiritual gifts, like you were saying that person could have telepathic kind of vision? Um, the, the greatest gift I received was the ability to sit here with you all and talk about the Bhagavad Gita. Okay. That's the greatest gift and I had. my suspicion you had that when you well, let's put it this way. Um, those kinds of powers that you're referring to are not all that mystical at the end of the day. Some people know how to swim. To someone who doesn't know how to swim, that's a mystical power. How do you do that? How do you stay afloat in the water? It's, it's a matter of mastering certain energies within the body that then allow you to do things that people who haven't achieved that mastery of those energies are unable to do. Right, but is that part of the training of being in an ashram or part of your... your Not usually. Um, Patanjali describes mystic powers. Those kind, they're called siddhis, S-I-D-D-H-I. You're going to get a lot of Sanskrit vocabulary. Keep a little notebook. It's good to learn these words. They are what are known as the asta siddhis, eight mystic powers. Lagima siddhi, mahima siddhi, etc., the ability to um, make yourself so light that you can float. Have you ever seen that? We'll get into that some other time. <laughs> um, it's just you had mentioned it so briefly and casually that it's well, it, it, in in Yoga Sutras, Patanjali describes them as incidental flowers. Okay. They're they're almost a distraction, really, uh, on the path towards true self awareness. Mm -hmm. um, they're dangerous. Uh, a, a little bit of power can go right to your head and unfortunately the history of yoga in America and elsewhere is the history of people usually men but not just men who have developed some of these cities and they use them to sway innocent people into becoming their disciples and giving them money or whatever um, it's uh, the, the real siddhi the real Power is love. Mm -hmm. Love is still the greatest mystic power in the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Bhagavad Gita leads ultimately, is to that place in the heart where that iceberg that we've been carrying around so long starts to melt. Mm -hmm. And that power is much greater than any 
display of, you know, controlling energies or reaching out and grabbing something a thousand miles away and bringing it back. Or, I mean, there's stuff that you can do, but it's not what real spiritual life is all about. You just happen to be born a certain way? or Well, some of it may be a carryover from previous lives also. There's a verse in the Gita where Krishna describes, Arjuna asks Krishna, what happens if I don't finish my yoga practice in this lifetime? Will I be like a cloud drifting without, you know, I won't have a material life, won't have a spiritual life, I just feel like floating around? And Krishna says, no, no, any progress that you make is, a, is carried over into your next lifetime. Mm-hmm. Unlike material wealth, money, if you spend it and it's gone, spiritual wealth, you retain and you progress. If in this lifetime you make a 50% progress in your spiritual life, next life you will pick up from 50. If, if you fall off for whatever reason, you fall away from your practice, you become frustrated, you get the wrong teacher, uh, you get distracted, uh, bad things happen, you just can't do it anymore for whatever reason, it's not lost. And that's an assurance that Krishna gives in the Gita. Don't, don't ever feel that this is a waste of time. If you can stay the course, that's best. But never fear, it, it, it is not lost. Mm-hmm. So you develop a certain amount of these abilities or insights or knowledge or purification to a certain degree. In your next lifetime, you pick up... We've all known people, they take to yoga like a duck takes to water. How do they do that? You know, well, it's quite, quite possible that they're picking up from a previous life and carrying on from where they left off last time. Um, I think you'll find that there are things that you even think you know. When we go into the original, the traditional sense of them, you'll derive a lot deeper understanding. Like the word karma gets bandied about like crazy. Uh, Much more complicated idea than what what most most people know about. And over the course of time, if I may be so bold, what you'll find is that the benefits are cumulative. Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, I remember after a certain number, I've been doing this for about a half century now. So I remember after about 10 years, 12 years, starting to walk down the street and recognizing the effect of the triguna, the three gunas in other people. Uh, I had to stop myself. It's not polite to judge people. <laughs> but after a while, you really can kind of uh, get a sense that, wow, this person is really heavily under tamaguna, you know, heavily influenced by darkness or um, a sense of weight, weightiness of despair. Uh, that's someone solidly in rajaguna over there. Rajaguna, the guna, or the, the material determinant of um, uh, action, passion, forward movement, accomplishment. Uh, we know a lot of people like that. I'm sure you've known people like that. Um, and each of these uh, behavioral um, atmospheres carries with it a certain proclivity for diet, a certain kind of food. Rajaguna generally is a hot kind of um, intense tastes. Um, Sattva guna is a mode of light. 
light both in the sense of clarity and in the sense of light living. Uh, sometimes it's called the mode of goodness. So, well, after a while, you'll you'll find that yeah, I can recognize in your you'll recognize in yourself. Boy, I'm, I just want to pull that cover back over my head today. Boy, am I in Tamaguna this morning? Mm -hmm. um, yes. What is the definition of bhakti? The word bhakti means devotional service, meaning an active expression of love for the beloved. Now, in the Gita tradition, bhakti refers specifically to Sri Krishna, the Supreme Being. In a lot of yoga studios, they'll use the word bhakti to mean who gets to mop the floor this week. Uh, that's, that, you might call that community service. It's not exactly bhakti. Bhakti is a very profound thing. In fact, the medieval bhakti texts that go into the depth of what bhakti is all about are an absolutely brilliant study in human psychology that unpacks the nature of relationships. Relationships between lovers, between family members, between friends, between employers and employees, and the nuances of expression of love. The love is not just one thing. <laughs> it's this multi-dimensional, many-flavored, many-layered masala, you know, this, <laughs> this, if you will. And uh, the, the great masters of bhakti have done a marvelous job describing the intricate details of, of love. So it's a real study, it's a real science. I don't think we're going to get too far into those texts during this series, at least not right away. But um, I'll bring some in and we can, we can look at some of them if you like. Okay, terrific. Now let me just mention that uh, in future weeks, I didn't, we didn't have a formal altar. I did bring a picture of Radha and Krishna, divinity in male and female form. We'll get into that description some other time. And a picture of my teacher. Usually these classes... The tradition is to start class with a prayer to one's teacher as an expression that I've been honored to receive these teachings. I pass them along. I have a responsibility. This is, may look like a blanket. It's actually a vyasasana. <laughs> Vyasasan or the asana of Vyas, right? The compiler of the Vedic texts. Yeah. Anyone who sits here on the seat of Vyasa is representing that tradition. So I have a responsibility to you to present these teachings as they have been passed down in what is known in the Gita as the parampara, the cyclic succession over time. So I don't invent things. I may invent some analogies or some stupid jokes <laughs> to kind of keep things moving along. But the essence of the teachings are as I have received them from my teacher, who received them from his teacher, going all the way back to Sri Krishna. So that's your kind of insurance policy that the teachings are authentic. Alright? So there'll be an altar and you'll see the altar next time we come and we'll have a little bit of a ritual there. Sorry, interrupt. So, so these are the Vedic, Vedic texts? Bhagavad Gita is the essence of the Vedic texts. It's the condensed, distilled down in 700 really densely packed sutras, mm -hmm. packed verses, 
the essence of essentially hundreds and hundreds of Sanskrit texts. So we have in this, you ha you're holding in this one book everything that you need to know and that will describe for you what's in all of those other texts. And your teacher's name is? A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. So disciples called him Prabhupada. Prabhu Pada. Pada means foot or feet. And Prabhu means master. In fact, you are all my Prabhus. There's a verse uh, we usually end. I, didn't, I wasn't going to do it today. We'll do it anyway. At the end of these sessions, there's a prayer that the teacher offers to the disciples or the students or the guests in the room. And it goes like this. Banchakalpa turubhyascha kripa sindhubhya evacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavibhyo namo namaha The translation is um, I offer my appreciations to all of you who are the true Krishna bhaktas. You are the real bhaktas. Uh, your hearts are full of compassion for souls who have been denied this beautiful knowledge and uh, it's a privilege to be in your company. So Prabhupada, there's an honorific title that my teacher had, means the person at whose feet Prabhus gather, others gather to learn. So he was a great master, he was Prabhupada and a disciple I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. If anybody wants to know more about him, in particular, Joshua Green wrote a wonderful book mm. on his teacher. Swami in a Strange Swami Land. Swami in a Strange Land. <laughs> this is the strange land, by the way. Not, not Oyster Bay, particularly, yeah. but America, when it came. Yeah. Did he have other students during the 13 years he was working with you? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I, yes, I, I was one of the early disciples. Okay. Uh, I was initiated in 1970. And at that time, there might have been a few hundred Krishna bhaktas. Now there are several million around the world. Well, during the 13 years that you were working with him. Right. Well, he passed away in 77. And by then he had 5,000 disciples. But when you were there in India, was it like a whole class of people working with him? <laughs> Well, in India, this is mainstream. Vaishnava, or bhakti, is the largest single community within Hinduism. Most people you meet from India are Vaishnavas. They are devotees of Krishna. Okay. Now, something you, you need to bear in mind, what we're studying is not Hinduism. You will not find the word Hindu one time and the Bhagavad Gita. This is very important to understand. Hmm. The word Hindu was invented by the British. It meant people on the other side of the Sindh River. Sindhus became Hindus. Hmm. The Muslim pronunciation, Muslims pronounce S's like H's, so they became Hindus. And when the British started taking census surveys, one of the questions was, are you a Muslim or a Hindu? That was the first time that Hinduism became a religion. It was invented by the British. So that's not what we're studying here. We're not studying Hinduism. We're not talking about adopting Hindu practices. Right? The sun may rise in the east, but that doesn't make it an eastern sun. 
Krishna appeared in India, but the teachings are universal. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you all. It's a thank pleasure you. to meet you. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org. Thank you.